Welcome one and all. You stumbled into episode 106 of this thing that we call the Far Middle Podcast. Glad all you constant listeners are back. I am Nick DeLulius, and as always, I am happy to be talking with you. We can start off by taking a look at the calendar and recognizing that this episode first airs on May 31st, and that date marks the anniversary of a prominent death and a prominent birth. So let's start with the bad news. On this date in 2010, the French artist Louis Bourgeois passed away at the age of 98. And if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you know by now that I enjoy art, but that I know very little about art. Actually, that describes a lot of personal interest when it comes to your host. Anyway, I am familiar with Louis Bourgeois' work. My kids growing up took a liking to her giant sculptures, the most famous one uh, being of spiders. That's what she's most noted for, although her works are much more extensive than the famous spider sculptures. And as an artist and a person, you know, she could be quite intimidating and had an aggressive personality, which both, by the way, contrasted with her small physical frame. And she once said that she transformed nasty work into good work, and she transformed hate into love. Um, One of those creative geniuses, I think, who found a way to sort of take that hurt, trauma, and anxiety that she experienced and convert them into her work. But there is a happier side to May 31st, which is a prominent birthday to celebrate and dedicate our episode to from the world of sports. Back in 1943 on this day in the town of Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh, a boy was born by the name of Joseph William Namath, or Joe Willie Namath, or Broadway Joe. And part of his family immigrated from Hungary, and came to Western PA, and his family included those like so many around here who worked in the mines and the mills. And Namath was all-world at just about every sport in high school, including basketball, baseball, and of course football. He had numerous offers to join Major League Baseball farm teams, including with his beloved Pittsburgh Pirates. But football was the path, in part because his mom liked the idea of him going to college and getting a degree, which eventually he did, albeit he did it after the age of 60. Now, Namath had many offers from Division I college football programs, including Penn State and Ohio State, Alabama, of course, where he ended up, and also Notre Dame. And he didn't choose Alabama at first. No, he initially ended up picking Maryland at first, but was rejected by Maryland because his college board scores were just below the school's requirements. Meanwhile, Alabama coach Paul Bear Bryant, he kept at Namath and eventually nabbed him. Bryant later went on record saying his decision to recruit Namath was was the best coaching decision that he ever made. And he also, Bryant did, said that Namath was the greatest athlete that he ever coached. So from 1962 to 1964, Namath was at Alabama. They won a national championship in 1964. He was a first-round draft pick by both the NFL and its rival, the AFL. The two leagues were intense rivals at the time, and they held their drafts on the same day in late 1964. And here's a little bit of trivia for you. Now, we all know that the Jets picked Namath as the first overall AFL selection that year, but which team drafted Namath from the NFL? St. Louis Cardinals. That's the team, and they did it with the 12th overall pick in the NFL draft that year. And here's something that will make you laugh. Namath's salary request to the Cardinals, so he got, you know, Two basically drafted by two teams, the Cardinals and the NFL, and of course the Jets and the AFL. So the Cardinals, when Namath was initially negotiating with them for salary, his ask was $200,000 and a new Lincoln Continental. (laughs) So here's something even funnier in today's context. The Cardinals, they turned back to Namath and responded to that request and said they'd agree to his terms 
but only if he would sign before the Orange Bowl, which would have made Namath ineligible to play in that game, which was going to decide the national championship in 1964. Namath decided to play in the Orange Bowl, and today, of course, is very different uh, with respect to what you see. The best college players today, they sit out their bowl games to focus on the coming money. And after the Orange Bowl, uh, Namath, of course, signed with the Jets in the AFL for $427,000 over three years, which was, by the way, a record contract at the time. His Jets teammate, Sherman Plunkett, came up with the nickname Broadway Joe in 1965 when Namath first appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And in 1965, Namath was AFL Rookie of the Year. In 1967, this is interesting, he became the first quarterback to throw for 4,000 yards in a single season, and he did that in 14 games because they were 14-game seasons back then. And that record wasn't broken or matched until 1979 when Dan Fouts of the Chargers beat it, but he needed 16 games, a 16-game season to do that. Now, Namath's knees uh, really plagued and tortured him throughout his career. He would often, it wasn't sort of uh, uncommon to have him have his knee drained at halftime of a game and then go back in and play the second half. That's what you call tough. But of course, the high point of Namath's career was his performance in the Jets' 16-7 win over the Baltimore Colts in Super Bowl III, right before the AFL-NFL merger. First two Super Bowls, of course, were blowout victories for the NFL and the Green Bay Packers. In the 1968 Colts that the Jets faced in Super Bowl III, they were touted as the greatest football team in history. Namath got tired of hearing about how the Jets had no chance, and he responded to a heckler at a sports banquet before the big game with the line, we're going to win the game, I guarantee it. Of course, he backed it up. Namath won the game. He was also the Super Bowl MVP. But those knees, they caught up to Joe Namath eventually, and he retired after the 1977 season. And which team did he retire with? He played his last season with who? Do you know the team? Los Angeles Rams. But then Broadway Joe, he sort of took up his second career after football, one which in many ways seemed even more suited for him than football, which was showbiz. Uh, he was on TV. He was in movies. Um, he was, yes, on Broadway. He announced sporting events. Um, he did commercials, including probably his most famous one for pantyhose. Um, Joe Namath made himself into a football great and then a pop culture icon only in America. Episode 106 is dedicated to Joe Namath. Now, I went back and looked in our dedication history archives, and we never dedicated an episode to Namath. So glad we finally got him officially in the record book of far middle dedications. So let's jump into our connections for the episode. I threw out some surprising notes regarding Namath, how he wanted to attend Maryland in college and his salary at the start of his career. And in that vein, I'd like to connect to a few surprising statistics and facts I came across when reading a blog from an economics professor regarding the minimum wage. Now, the blogger is Michael Munger. Not sure if there is any relation to Charlie Munger of Berkshire fame. But anyway, he discussed how he asked two questions to his undergrad students in his economics class. Now, the first question is, what percentage of workers in America are at the minimum wage level? And then the second question that he asks is, if you are a worker earning that minimum wage, where does that place you on the curve of world income distribution? Now, the answers to each question might surprise you because they certainly surprise me. And I consider myself somewhat of a novice enough to be dangerous type of an economics fan. So let's go to the answers. The first question, what percentage of U.S. workers are at the minimum wage? 
The answer to that question is not half the workers, or a third, or a fifth, or even a tenth of the U.S. workforce. The answer is that 2%, 2% of American workers earn minimum wage. That took me by surprise, and if you came even close to that low of a guess, kudos to you. Now, the answer to the second question is all about things being relative, including income and quality of life, because the American worker earning at the minimum wage places the individual above the 85th percentile of global income distribution. My guess when I was thinking through this, and I put some thought into this one before assessing, was about at the 50th percentile of global income distribution. But the fact is, American workers at minimum wage sit near to the top of the global income distribution curve. Meaning what? Well, these two surprising facts, and you know, how do they matter? I think they lead us to a couple of realizations. First, most Americans, including myself, are a bit clueless on fundamental economic matters. We don't sometimes have that clue as to what a global income distribution curve looks like. We don't realize that a very small portion of the national workforce earns at minimum wage levels. And ignorance is not going to be bliss in the case of understanding the fundamentals of our economy and its place within the global economy. We need to study up constant listeners, and your host includes is included, I guess, in that list, and I'm all in for upping my understanding. So join me if you like, or help me get up to speed if you are already there. Now, the second takeaway is that once you come to realize the facts and the data, you quickly understand how biased the system is. And when I reference the system, I'm talking from education to media and manufacturing these false narratives. What types of narratives? The capitalism and the free market in America, they all hurt the poor. Quite the contrary when you go to the tape. Not perfect, mind you, but damned effective compared to the rest of the alternatives. I think another takeaway, the rest of the world is hurting. If Americans at minimum wage are only 2% of the total national workforce, and that 2% are better off than 85% of the global workforce, then the rest of the world should, by and large, be copying and following our lead on every imaginable economic matter, or at least those policies and practices that got us here. Instead, what do we see? We see a lot of the world at times, and also our own leaders at times at home, right? They want to cajole an apology and a reversal of what is the American economy because it's not fair or because it's too harsh. That's nonsense. The facts prove such a pair of premises as nonsense. And last, the last takeaway, I think, is that it exposes how wrongheaded the left is, generally and specifically in the arena of economic policy. So whether it's socialism or communism or state control of economic activity, those things only push America toward the rest of the world. And when it's reversion to the mean, when you are at the top of the class, that is not going to be a desired path. So get the bureaucrat out of commerce. Marx and Lenin should not be replacing Friedman and Hayek in college econ courses. And a system designed to focus on value reappropriation can't match a system rewarding value creation. Let's connect. Economic power and strength, what we were just touching upon, are prerequisite to military might, which is a prerequisite to global power. And when discussing Joe Namath, we talked about the established power of the old line NFL and the rising power rival of the new AFL. Well, today we have economic power and strength once again driving a geopolitical outcome between an established power, the United States, and a rising power, China. 
There was a speech back in late April by Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen that addressed this very issue between the two global powers, or what some call the G2, China and the United States. And I found the Secretary's speech to be quite interesting. Certainly some big issues there. Um, some of what I heard I agreed with. Um, some of it I took exception to. And some of it leads one to question how Washington proceeds with certain policies. So let's take a look at some of the key points of the speech. Um, she was clear that the United States is intending to remain the dominant global power. That's good. I'm all for that. I'm all in on that idea. And as we just discussed, the U.S. should be the template for the rest of the world's economies. But Secretary Yellen also said that America will not try to prevent China's economic advancement. She supported many trading and scientific ties and links. Okay, now that gives me some pause because China is our clear rival, not just economically, but also militarily and geopolitically. And if economic power leads to military power, which leads to geopolitical power, it's to some extent, or perhaps a great extent, a zero-sum game where China's rise comes at the expense of the U.S.'s demise. So U.S. policy should tread carefully and gingerly on aiming to help China or even allow China to rise economically. And certainly us collaborating or sharing technology or scientific advancement with China, as Dr. Yellen hinted at or alluded to, I think that's highly dubious and dangerous to our interests. We should be very careful there. Then Secretary Yellen made a really interesting comment in the speech. She said that a full separation of our economies, China and the U.S., would be disastrous for both nations. So that was sort of an economic version of mutually assured destruction, MAD theory, right, from nuclear diplomacy and game theory. And I'm sure she stated that position to help calm tensions between the nations. But let's face the reality that China has designed its state economy and its ties to the West and the United States specifically not to optimize value or profit or economic utility, but instead to maximize its leverage and power position over us. Economy and economic policy, they're just tools to use to conquer the West. It's not a cold war, as China sees it, and it's not a live shooting war, at least not yet, but it is somewhere in between and moving toward the latter. So any interconnections economically between us and them, to quote a Pink Floyd song, should not be given the benefit of the doubt and instead should undergo a thorough analysis and diligence to pass muster under the lens of national security interests. And if we perform such an analysis, guess what? Most, much of those economic ties between China and the United States, they would be viewed as destructive to U.S. interests and would need to go. What I see is that a drastic lessening of current economic ties between the West and China would not be disastrous for the West and the United States, as Dr. Yellen indicates, but it would be advantageous and helpful to our interests. It would make the West stronger. And this is coming from a free trade and capitalism advocate. But you only have those things if you have a powerful nation in terms of defense and geopolitical standing. Okay, the last thing that caught my eye from Dr. Yellen's speech, I think was the most interesting. Uh, she was defending some of the policy moves that the United States made in recent years to better position ourselves to fend off the China threat. She said, and I'm quoting her the, here, that even though these policies may have economic impacts, they are driven by straightforward national security considerations. We will not compromise on these concerns, even when they force trade-offs with our economic interests. Okay, now we're cooking with gas. By the way, are we still allowed to say cooking with gas in a 
politically correct code red world? You bet we are common listeners. But seriously, uh, Dr. Yellen nailed it there. Yes, we are capitalistic and we look to optimize economic value through trade with other nations, but we won't engage, we shouldn't engage in such trade if it works against our national interests that secure our economic interests. That's astute. And that leads me to the next connection. Although that last statement and thinking by Dr. Yellen is astute, the United States and the West unfortunately failed to adhere to it when it comes to energy policy. And the problem traces back to climate change policies. So follow me here. Dr. Yellen, she's spot on by saying smart policy will look beyond economic optimization for trade between rival nations if national security interests are at stake or if they're harmed by the trade. And that's not being isolationist or anti-free trade or protectionist. It's being smart, as in street smarts, where the street has China down the block menacing and plotting against us. But then here comes Code Red for Humanity, the environmental movement and the left. They tell us that atmospheric CO2 is the most threatening thing to humanity in the near and long terms. And if something isn't done immediately to correct the problem, humanity will become extinct and the world will end. Those extreme views of the ideology bordering on religion, they lead to the justification for policies that increase our reliance on China and decrease our economic vitality and energy independence. Those things worsen and dilute our economic strength. They worsen our military position and strength, which then places China in an improved and strengthened position on a geopolitical stage relative to the United States and to the West. That is the exact opposite situation that Dr. Yellen described as the astute approach and informed position in her speech. And what we've instead are massively damaging policies under the banner of tackling climate change that are driven by an ideology that clearly works against our, as Dr. Yellen put it, straightforward national security considerations. These climate change policies, they wreak widespread economic havoc to boot. And when you think things through, you come to the quick realization that climate change policies in the West achieve the worst of all possible outcomes, widespread economic devastation coupled with degrading our national security considerations. It's strange, is it not, constant listeners? The signature policies of the current administration are aimed at tackling climate change at all costs, both economic and geopolitical, which conflicts with and contradicts with the stated rationale of how Dr. Yellen says we should approach trade relations and wider relations with China. That's why I've often said that the best ally of the Chinese Communist Party in the West is an environmentalist or a bureaucrat that is dictating to us prescribed policies on how we are to tackle climate change. The more they succeed in instituting these policies here, and worse yet doubling down on them, the stronger China becomes and the weaker we become, economically, militarily, and geopolitically. The level and the degree of the irrational behaviors and climate policies that work against the national interests of America and the West they're obscenely evident in our next connection, and I would use the term comically instead of obscenely if it were not leading to such dire consequences. You see, Europe and the United States, they are in the middle of a tiff and on the verge of a trade war all over subsidies for wind, solar, and electric vehicles. Now, President Biden and Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which pours massive subsidy into solar, wind, and EVs. And of course, that's all under the banner of tackling climate change. 
But meanwhile, Europe is doing the same with its climate policies. In fact, Europe got a big head start on the U.S. with these policies. And now Europe is angry that the United States is offering too much subsidy to tackle climate change to the extent where the EU feels it is losing investment to the United States. Now, wait a minute. I am confused. Maybe you are too. I thought the EU and its central planners viewed climate change as a global, again, code red, that is putting us all on the brink of extinction. So if the United States or China or Papua New Guinea, for that matter, if they want to subsidize a zero carbon economy or tackling climate change or a cure to code red, why wouldn't the EU central planner be thrilled? It's saving the world from pending catastrophe, and it's saving the world on the dime of another nation's citizens. A reduction in CO2 anywhere on the planet is to the greater good, and it's to the good of Mother Earth and to the betterment of life, right? But instead, Europe's freaking out because the United States is subsidizing wind, solar, and electric vehicles and the supposed emission uh, reductions from them more than Europe is. Now, that's nonsensical when it moseys up alongside the religious tenets of the Church of Climate. But there's the flaw, you see. This code red is not about getting to zero carbon, despite the pounding of that drum. It never was. This religion, like many others, used the construct of the devil and sin, in this case carbon, to justify rules and policies to gain control, to exert power over the individual and over society and for the favored and elite enablers to make money off of the effort in the process. United States subsidy of tackling climate change through the IRA, it adheres to the religion's wrapping, but it conflicts with the real goals of control and value appropriation from the EU perspective. So expect the EU to double down on their level of subsidy in the energy transition, if they can afford it. Heck, I'm not sure the United States or Europe can afford anything anymore these days, let alone a multi-trillion dollar and a multi-trillion euro race to the bottom of subsidy bubbles for wind and solar and EVs. But either way, this doesn't make sense until you see through the veneer for what this is really about. Now, these issues that we've been discussing, from our China strategy or lack thereof, to climate policies that look to create a race toward a bottomless pit of subsidization of dubious pieces of the energy portfolio pie, these things belie an underlying problem that Americans have with fundamental basics or understanding of key issues, and we can connect to that topic next. Specifically, let's home in on a lack of understanding of the basic math when it comes to something we've all heard a lot about lately, which are government mandates and subsidy for EVs. So allow me to explain that math. And first, let me back up to a higher level for just a second. The core premise as to why policymakers say we need to subsidize and mandate EVs from their production to their purchase is to save the planet from a potential catastrophe as measured by the key metric of atmospheric CO2 levels. But there are three big math problems with that premise. So let's tick them off. Math problem number one is so basic mathematically that it verges on being more of a logic flaw. It speaks to the reality that if government subsidizes any form of energy use, including transportation using EVs, energy demand and use will increase, not decrease. Net-net. That's a certainty. So realize from the get-go that any EV mandate or subsidy will necessarily increase energy use compared to what energy use levels would be without the mandate and without the subsidy. Now, that's an odd starting point where the justification for the mandate or subsidy was to curtail energy use 
to avoid growing CO2 concentration levels. But the answer offered by the EV lobby and the bureaucrat pushing the EV agenda is that EVs are zero carbon sources of energy, which leads straight into math problem number two. That is the basic carbon accounting of EV production and use that leads to the obvious conclusion that EVs are incredibly carbon intensive and that they carry ungodly carbon footprints and emit CO2 on an epic scale, particularly for their production supply chain steps. Now, policy imagines and pretends that EVs and their use are zero carbon. That's not math, that's a fairy tale. But if the fairy tale is a foundational pillar of the policy that reinforces the ideology, then the math gets jettisoned. But here is math problem number three with EV policy. So even if one ignores the first two math problems, that being that EV subsidy and mandates will increase energy use, not decrease it, and that the type of energy use the policy will grow has a horrendous carbon footprint, there is still a third and final math problem that drives a stake through the heart of this Church of Climate-favored policy prescription, and that is how even if EVs were magically zero carbon, in other words, if you bought into the fairy tale, mandating EVs in America, it won't amount to a drop in the CO2 bucket of atmospheric climate. So let's go to the math to prove the point. And I'm going to drill down a bit here on global CO2 emissions for you, so follow me. Transportation is about 20% of total global CO2 emissions, per the experts. In cars and vans, both personal and fleet, they're only about 8% of total global emissions. In personal vehicles, in other words, not fleet vehicles, they're about three-fourths of the total vehicles out there, but personal vehicles sit idle in garages or driveways most of the time, even though most of you constant listeners who are parents with younger kids may feel otherwise, is you are constantly shuttling kids from one event to another in an endless stream. But nevertheless, that means that personal vehicles end up having only about one-fourth of the annual emissions of fleet cars or fleet vans. So the math says personal vehicles across the globe are a majority of the number of vehicles, but they are only about 40%, give or take, of total light vehicle emissions, which works out to about 3% of total CO2 global emissions. And the U.S. is about 12% of the global transportation fleet, which means U.S. subsidy and mandates equate to no more than about 0.4% of emissions from the transportation sector. And that's assuming EVs are zero carbon across their life cycle, which is nonsensical fiction. So you factor in how the developing world is exponentially increasing and growing its personal transportation fleets in coming years, and the U.S. is expected to post much lower, if not flat, growth in personal vehicles. And you see that EV mandates and subsidy, as I said earlier, are not a drop in the atmospheric climate bucket. And therein lies the big three math problems with EV mandates and subsidy. They increase energy use, not decrease it. They force uses of energy that are far from zero emission and instead carry egregious carbon footprints. And the portion of global emissions they will affect is a tiny, tiny piece of the total emission portfolio, trillions of dollars in waste premised on policy that is an affront to basic math. Climate change policies are being exposed as the commandments of an ideological religion that rejects science. Boy, that went fast. I am going to close out episode 106 on a sad note. 
that I've been meaning to discuss for a few weeks. I haven't been able to get it uh, to it in the last couple of episodes. We lost a jazz great and Pittsburgh legend, Ahmad Jamal, a few weeks ago at the age of 92. And I've spoken about Ahmad Jamal a few times in prior episodes of The Far Middle. I was a huge fan of his work, despite the critics never giving him his due. Those damn critics, there they are again. But Ahmad Jamal was one of the pioneers of the cool jazz movement. And for me, he was the best jazz pianist of his era. And that is saying something when you think about some of the greats alongside him. Uh, by the way, if you want to get a feel for his influence, if you like Miles Davis, and I know a lot of people do, know that one of his biggest influencers was Ahmad Jamal. Now, Ahmad Jamal's most famous recording is at the Pershing. It's a classic. Give it a listen this week if you get a chance. And I will leave you to think about a quote from Ahmad Jamal. He once said, I would like to be a scholar in whatever I do. A scholar is never finished. He's always seeking, and I am always seeking. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Seeking, and we will seek on next week. So long for now.